sisters here this morning. I can't express my appreciation enough for your prayers and support as we uh, deal with the uh, challenges uh, of Herb's illness and his decline. And uh, um, it really means a lot to know that you're there and you're praying for us and giving, uh, uh, encouraging Herb. And I just appreciate that so much. And it, uh, it especially blesses me when I see the response to various pieces of news and I see that my brothers and sisters in Christ are weeping with those who weep. And that really, that, that gets to me more than anything. You know, it's hard anyway, but when I see you guys, you know, I told Carl this morning that we're, we're having to move Herb to a memory care facility here within the next few weeks. And, and he, he teared up and I thought that's, that's what it means to weep with those who weep. And it just blesses me. So thank you, my brothers and sisters. I appreciate the support. Um, really unrelated, but uh, in some ways it is related. I've been thinking a lot about heaven. And uh, sometimes people have a lot of weird ideas about heaven, don't they? You know, like how we get there. That's one of the weirdest ideas. There's all kinds of weird ideas about how you get there. What's there and what it's like when we do get there, if we get there. For example, how, about, how many of you heard this idea? The idea that when we go to heaven, we get angel's wings, right? You may have heard it said that when someone dies, God needed another angel. Huh? Of course, there's all kinds of biblical problems with this and with a lot of other ideas that some people have about heaven which just plain aren't true. Some of those weird ideas are even held by Christians, unfortunately, but there are clear, biblically defined benefits associated with what we have to look forward to in heaven. We see in 1 Corinthians 2.9, as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's us, folks, those who love him. Now, the interesting thing to me is that apparently even dogs get this. Here's a dog who apparently had a near-death experience, and he's written a book called Dog Heaven is for Real, and telling about his 10 minutes in heaven. On the cover is a picture, I don't know if you can see it, it's a fire hydrant floating on a, crowd, a cloud, perfectly uh, perfectly illustrated. And reading from the book, the dog says, and while I didn't notice what Jesus looked like, here's a description of the sandwich that he was holding. <laughs> one clear benefit we'll have in heaven is being with God. And here's one idea of what that'll be like. Here's God reading from the book Atheism 101. And those listening are just laughing hysterically. And then God says, oh, wait, 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 there's something even funnier in chapter 2. Of course, one common misunderstanding of heaven is what we have to do to get there. Now, those of you who are on social media and email might appreciate this. Here's Peter, and he's at the gates of heaven, reading from the record of this couple, and he says, your social networking record is terrible. Two missed opportunities to like Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and a refusal to prove your faith with a simple forward to your ten best friends. I'm in trouble if that's part of the standard. One of the great benefits of heaven is that we'll get to be with the Lord forever. And here's Jesus with a guy who's taking a selfie with him and apparently he doesn't get it. I've tried to explain, Jesus said, that he's going to be with me forever, but he just doesn't get it. It's also a little less than biblical that we'll have halos, which like these residents of heaven, we can play ring toss with those halos. Though we won't have halos, folks, we will be perfectly holy we will be perfectly holy. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, 
because we shall see him as he is. I've thought about this a lot in recent months. Every day in this life, we struggle with sin. Despite the fact that in Christ we've been freed from the dominion of sin, every day we see sin's insidious hold on our fallen human nature. We cringe, or at least we should, we cringe over those things that we sometimes do, that we sometimes say, that we sometimes think. Where did that thought come from? Why did that comment escape my lips? How can I even think that? Why does my attitude about this or that event or this or that thing or this or that person fall so short of the glory of God? Why am I so selfish? Why am I so impatient? Why don't I always have compassion for my fellow human beings and maybe worse yet, I don't have sometimes compassion for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Why, why, why? It's sin, folks. It's the sin. It's the plague that we're all afflicted with. And the very reason that we need the redeeming love of Christ. It's the reason Jesus went to the cross for us. The Apostle Paul recognized in many places this very clear lifelong struggle. Especially in this familiar passage from Romans chapter 7. So let me read this and see if you can relate to any of this. This is Paul writing to the Romans, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So here we see a recognition of our ongoing, lifelong struggle with the sin within But we also have hope, a sure and certain hope that we are delivered from sin because of the blood of Christ. And someday we will be perfectly transformed because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross and with his resurrection gaining victory over sin and death for us. Someday, folks, someday in the presence of our maker and our redeemer, we will be free from this struggle with sin. We will be free from sin. We will be truly holy as He is holy, whether we have halos or not, because we'll be clothed with His holiness. So our transformation, which began at the moment when the Holy Spirit came into our hearts at salvation, will then, in that moment, be complete. It's the greatest unsung benefit of heaven. 
Now, unsung benefits, you may have heard that phrase, are the seemingly lesser benefits or the hidden things that we don't often think about or talk about. An unsung benefit of exercise, for example, isn't just better health. It's more energy. It's weight loss or control. It's endorphins improving your mood. These are kind of unsung benefits of exercise. Research also shows there's unsung benefit of marriage, a reduced chance of heart attack. Jim probably knew that. Encouragement of safer behavior, lower stress levels, although I guess that depends on who you're married to. (laughs) There are unsung or hidden or often not talked about benefits to all kinds of things in this life. And you know what? That's true of heaven too. When we think about heaven, what do we most look forward to about heaven? Well, I think first on our list should be this, being in the presence of the maker of the universe, in the presence of the one who made us, the one who redeemed us. The Apostle Paul that said that being in the presence of the Lord is far better than any of the good, even the wonderful things that we can enjoy in this life. We were made to glorify him. And in his presence, we will have the chance to do that face-to-face for all eternity. What a wonderful thing. I believe that everything else, all the other benefits of heaven, will pale in comparison to this. I believe that's one of the reasons that there will be no more crying or mourning or pain, as Scripture tells us, in the light of his presence. The one who is the light, literally, everything else will fade into the background, into the distance. We think of the old song, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I really believe that of all the wonderful things that will be true of our time in eternity with the King of Kings, His presence will be enough all by itself. But you know what? You see those commercials on TV where they tout this benefit and that benefit, etc., etc. We see those from time to time. And then it says, but wait, there's more, right? There is more for us. There's more beyond just being in the presence of the King of Kings. We'll be with our loved ones, folks. Those of us who've gone before us, those who've gone before us in Christ. It'll be a wonderful reunion. Now, some people really truly look forward to that more than anything. And with our finite understanding of relationships and our current inability to see God as He really is, face-to-face, I think that's understandable. We miss those who are gone. There's nothing wrong with looking forward to seeing them again. Yet I still believe that the wonderful experience of being reunited with them will pale in comparison to the presence of the Lord. But still, that truly is a benefit of heaven. We'll be with our loved ones, being with those in Christ we love that we knew in this life. Another thing that a lot of us are looking forward to is being free of pain. Amen? This would include our physical issues, certainly. Our physical pain and suffering. It would also include mental issues. I think it would also include emotional pain. Those are very real things. No more suffering, folks. Anybody want to sign up for that? That's definitely a benefit of heaven. My father-in-law, Herb, will no longer experience the limitations of his Parkinson's disease and dementia. My mother-in-law, who died last April, will no longer forget everything about her life. Hazel won't suffer with allergies. She's suffered with allergies as long as I've known her. Laura Grinnell won't have rheumatoid arthritis. 
Pat Gregory won't experience the multiple physical issues and pain that she's had most of her adult life. Bob McWilliams won't be afflicted with PSP. Ron Wright and Joe Beck won't need oxygen tanks anymore. Amen, Joe? Joel won't break any more bones riding his bike. <laughs> all right. He could ride all around heaven. And he can even hit a slick spot and he'll be fine. <laughs> None of us will experience the emotional pain that we sometimes do of loved ones making foolish and destructive choices. You know what? We'll no longer have broken relationships. These folks are wonderful things to look forward to about our time and eternity with our Maker. Who wouldn't want these things? These are, to use our terminology for today, these are the sung benefits. huh? These are the sung benefits, the ones we figuratively and maybe even sometimes literally sing about And these are the things we most often recognize and rejoice in and look forward to. However, you know, as I grow more and more in Christ, I see deeply rooted sinfulness in me. Isn't that ironic? The closer you grow to the Lord, the more you see the darkness and sin in yourself. Outwardly, to probably most everybody but my wife and my closest friends who see the worst side of me, it might look like I have this sin problem under control. But I don't, not by a long shot. And please don't ask Barb for examples of how I don't. You don't either, so don't kid yourself. More than that, the closer I grow to Jesus, the more I see how far I have to grow. I'm where Paul is. just read a moment ago from Romans 7. I do not understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I delight in God, in my inner being. That's true of me. I do. I truly do. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body, this body of death? Despite the reality of the sin within, I've also answered according to, to the revelation of God's Word, Paul's last question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us back to a verse we looked at just a moment ago, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Let me read that again. Beloved, we are God's children, and now what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We see here an idea that theologians look at often. It's the idea of the already and the not yet. It's that dynamic tension that we live with this side of eternity. With certain things, both things are true at the same time. We are God's children now, John wrote, but what we will be has not yet appeared. We are in Christ today, Now, those of us who are in Christ, we are in Christ today, here, now. From the moment we accepted the fact that we're sinners, from the moment we believe that only His sacrifice can save us, and we receive that forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit entered in, we are, and we have been, children of God. And sin no longer has dominion over us. In the chapter before Paul's recognition of the sin that still battles us from within, we read from Romans 7, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Notice Paul's writing here. He's writing in the past tense. These things have already been done. These things have been accomplished for us. Our old self was crucified in him so that we'd no longer be enslaved to sin. The one who died, in this context, that's us. We've died with Christ. We are identified with him as we are buried in the waters of baptism. But the one who died has been, past tense, has been set free from sin. So that's the already. We read that in Romans 6. And then in Romans 7, we read the not yet. The already and not yet is seen in other truths of Scripture. For example, Jesus is right now, today as we sit here in this auditorium of Tulsa Christian Fellowship, Jesus is the King of Kings, and He is the Lord of Lords, the Lord of all creation. Yet, Satan still has influence on earth. And if you don't see that, you're really blind. The writer of Hebrews wrote about Jesus, In chapter 2, about Jesus putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone So in one sense, we're already glorified, but not completely yet. We see in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are raised up with him, Scripture tells us, and seated with him in heavenly places, but not yet. We're seated with him in heavenly places already, but not yet. I love this church, folks but it's not heaven. Jesus himself said on the cross, it is finished. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it was a declaration of the already, but we await the practical outworking, the manifestation of the not yet. Think of the person who lived between D-Day in 1944, June, and V-Day, Victory Day, in the spring of 1945. Now, D-Day was when the Allied troops invaded Europe. On June 6th, they pushed back, they began to push back the Nazis into Germany. But it wasn't until Germany's unconditional surrender, a little less than a year later, that the Allies actually claimed victory. There's a German theologian named Oskar Kuhlmann who wrote this, the decisive battle in a war may have already occurred in a relatively early stage of the war, and yet the war still continues. Although the decisive effect of that battle is perhaps not recognized by all, it nevertheless already means victory. He goes on to say, but the war must still be carried on for an undefined time until victory day. Precisely this is the situation of which the New Testament is conscious as a result of the recognition of the new division of time. The revelation consists precisely in the fact of the proclamation that the event on the cross, together with the resurrection which followed, was was the already concluded decisive battle. So we have this tension, folks. We have this tension in our Christian experience of the already and the not yet. Today, already, now, as it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we are children 
of God. But we don't realize or experience all the benefits of that salvation. Not yet. We are in process. We are a work under construction, a godly work of art that really just honestly isn't complete yet. As we read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9, what eye did not see and ear did not hear and what never entered the human mind, God prepared this for those who love him. We read in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully as I am fully known. So it is with sin in us. The victory, my brothers and sisters, has been won. It's been won. Glory to God, the victory's been won. But as John wrote, what we will be has not yet appeared. What will we be? Well, what we will be includes at least having glorified bodies, like Jesus' glorified body. Our glorified bodies will never be sick. They will never grow old or frail. They'll never die. And that means we will be completely without sin. So I thought about naming this message Sinless Perfection, but then I saw somebody sees that, they're going to think, wow, Bill's really gone off the rails. We'll be completely without sin, folks. In eternity, Christians will be morally without sin, intellectually without falsehood or error, physically without weakness or imperfections, and filled continually with the Holy Spirit. But like does not mean identical to, and believers will never be, for example, omniscient or omnipotent as Christ is, since he is both man and God. Now, you know what? I've believed this idea of sinless perfection in eternity for pretty much as long as I can remember. But I have never heard a message or read an article or a book about our perfect transformation in heaven. I've seen it referenced, but never read any long-form discussion of it. So when I began to study for this message, it was eye-opening to me to see the volume and the clarity of Scripture that affirms the truth that sinless perfection, though impossible in this life, let me be very clear about that, is our destiny in eternity for those who are in Christ. Let's start with a passage we referenced earlier, Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So here's John the Revelator. And he's telling us that there's no more crying, mourning, or pain in heaven. So think about this. There also was another place a long time ago that there was no mourning or crying or pain. In the Garden of Eden, right? Until the fall. Adam and Eve were in perfect harmony with God until sin reared its ugly head. So what causes mourning, crying, or pain? Sin does. Sin causes mourning, crying, and pain. So why do none of these things exist in eternity with Christ? They can't exist because there's no sin. There's no causes of mourning or crying or pain. Speaking of heaven, John wrote in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's 
book of life. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. So if we could sin, if there was the possibility of us sinning in heaven, in eternity, then something unclean or accursed would enter heaven. So not only will we not have sin in us, but we will be sinless forever. Note that Hebrews says that Jesus has appeared once for all. When? When did he appear once for all? At the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then we read a chapter later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We see the already and not yet. He's perfected for all time, but we're still being sanctified in this not yet time that we live in. He has perfected. That's the already. It's accomplished in God's grand view of redemption. And we remember how God sees time. He sees time as one eternal now. But being sanctified includes the idea that this perfection is not yet. And boy, don't we know that. Speaking of the end of the age, that is, after Jesus Uh, second coming, Matthew writes this in chapter 13. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, There it is, folks. All causes of sin, all lawbreakers are thrown into the fiery furnace. While the righteous, that's the word for those who are in Christ, shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. You know, at funerals, we often read this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, where it says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, we will be raised, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now the New King James says the dead will be raised incorruptible. So we will be changed, folks. We will be imperishable. Sin causes death. In sin, we perish. But we will be raised imperishable. Or as the New King James says, we will be raised incorruptible. Romans chapter 8, verse 23 says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. When does that happen? The redemption of our bodies. So sin and its physical, emotional, and spiritual consequences are in us. That's the not yet part, folks. So we groan. We groan until the redemption of our bodies. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. If there's no more death for those in Christ, that must mean there's no more sin. Randy Alcorn, who's written extensively on heaven, and even his ministry is based on this, it's called Eternal Perspective Ministries. He writes this, those who will never die again, or I'm sorry, will never die, can never sin, since sinners always die. That was the curse, wasn't it, folks? That was the original curse in the garden. Sin causes mourning, crying, and pain. If these will never occur again, then sin can never occur again. Revelation 21.4, which we read in a moment ago, tells us that in eternity with Christ, the old order of things has passed away. 
So that explains heaven's lack of death. It explains heaven's lack of mourning, crying, and pain. These are part of an old order that will be gone forever because the sin that caused these things is also gone. There's no need for us to fear a second fall. Adam and Eve fell. There's no need for us to fear that. Scripture emphasizes... Okay. Oh, we lost something there. Okay. Scripture emphasizes that Christ died once to deal with sin and will never again need to die. We'll have the very righteousness of God. We won't sin in heaven for the same reason God doesn't. He cannot sin. Our eternal inability to sin has been purchased by Christ's blood. So, how is heaven different from the garden? Where Adam and Eve did fall prey to temptation and they did sin. Why can't that happen to us in heaven? Well, the short answer is Jesus. That's the short answer. But think of this for a moment. In eternity in heaven, Satan, the tempter, is gone, folks. His new residence is the lake of fire. So we won't have him to tempt us. But we also know that we can't just blame Satan for everything because the sin is within us. So more importantly, Adam and Eve were different from us in one key way. They were innocent before the fall, but they had not been made righteous by Jesus. That's the only reason we're righteous, folks, is because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. We are not righteous in ourselves, but only through the atonement of Jesus. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's disobedience, the many will be made righteous. In eternity, we are completely, finally, fully, perfectly transformed and delivered from sin and its curse. Our righteousness is made complete. Looking again at uh, the passage that we've referred to several times in this message this morning. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. So there's already we are God's children and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is once we become what God has made us to be in Christ Jesus once we see him as he is we'll also see everything including pain suffering and sin for what they really are again as we read in 1 Corinthians 13 13 12 we now see in a mirror dimly That's what we see. We don't see everything clearly right now. There's a veil of sin that keeps us from seeing everything clearly. But then we'll see him face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So God won't need to restrain us from sin anymore. When our finite minds are opened, and the veil of sin no longer clouds our understanding, sin won't have any appeal to us. It'll be unthinkable. Isn't that good news? We'll wonder how we could have ever compelled, ever been compelled to sin at all. This will be the reality of our new nature, folks. We will, in the sense of His purity and holiness, we will be like Jesus. Praise God. That, it, it's an unsung benefit. It should be sung more. Jonathan Edwards said, Grace is glory begun, and glory is grace 
completed. Isn't that good? The Word of God, great Christian theologians and thinkers have affirmed this truth for centuries. Augustine wrote in his classic, The City of God, as the first immortality which Adam lost was to be able not to die, so the last shall be not to be able to die. As man's first free choice or will was to be able not to sin, so our last shall be not to be able to sin. As we close, let's think about how this truth should impact our lives in the here and now. The Apostle John provided an answer for that. A verse later, we've been reading and we've read about three or four times, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, we read this about what we just read, okay? And he says, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. So since our hope, folks, is in Jesus alone, and our destiny is purity and holiness and sinlessness, I believe that the understanding that this is our destiny in eternity should serve as a motivator. It should serve as a motivator. It should spur us on to holiness and to purity. That's what John is saying here. Rather than just think, gee, that'll be nice someday. I mean, that might be where we might end up. Let's cooperate, folks. Let's cooperate with the process that's ongoing now. That process of transformation that's already begun in us who are in Christ. We're justified in Christ. We are being sanctified. Let's cooperate with the Holy Spirit as He does this. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for all the amazing things that we have to look forward to in eternity with the King of Kings and with the Lord of Lords. We're thankful, Father, for the joy of being present with our Maker. We're thankful, Father, for the wonderful reality that we'll be reunited with our loved ones and that there'll be no more pain and suffering, Father. These are all wonderful things. But, Father, we also look forward to having this veil of sin lifted from us and being holy and pure in your sight because of what you accomplished for us on the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, because these things are our destiny, we do indeed pray, Lord, that you would help us, give us the grace to cooperate with your Holy Spirit as you work this purity and this amazing transformation in us, even in this life, even as we follow you with our whole hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.